This is Chad Brashears, and you're listening to Never In My Wildest Dream podcast. This podcast is about creating a behind-the-scenes look with coaches, fans, and reporters from our point of view, sharing cool stories as only we've lived them. The goal is for you to learn something new to help your life and allow yourself to take a break from everyday chaos and let us give you a behind-the-scenes look into our world. Never In My Wildest Dreams podcast begins in... Good morning and welcome to Never My Wildest Dream podcast, Saturday, January the 23rd, day 23 of the calendar year 2021. Look forward to today's show. We have Jeremy Brown on. Jeremy works for ESPN as a stat analytist now. I also worked with him at Shenandoah University, both as a grad student and as an assistant coach. Looking forward to having him here on the show. Jeremy will be back on after this message. Never in my wildest dreams podcast begins in... Three, two, one. Welcome back to Never My Wildest Dream Podcast. Looking forward to my next guest, Jeremy Brown, a.k.a. Moneyball. He is a guy that I worked with on the bench as well as when he was a grad assistant at Shenandoah, but we'll get to that here. He uh, started his undergraduate career at Springfield College in Massachusetts, where the Hall of Fame is. He transferred to Central Connecticut State University. He got his master's from Shenandoah. I worked with him one year on the bench before he went to Western Carolina to become the academic support for athletics. He came back to Shenandoah as an assistant coach and head of analytics, which is what our topic is going to be about today. He also went to Christopher Newport University as part of a Final Four staff there. He now is a substitute teacher works for ESPN and their stats department as a stat analyst. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me, and excited to be on. Yeah, it's going to be a good time. You uh, you mentioned one thing before we got on the air here with regards to the stats. You're doing NHL stats now, is that correct? Yeah, they, uh, I started off doing a bunch of the basketball, women's, and college hoops, which you know I'm passionate about, but they had some openings for the uh, hockey recently, so I've been doing a lot of the hockey games, so if any of you guys out there go on the internet or check your phone for hockey scores, we're the ones delivering the scores and making sure all the goals and the penalties come in correctly. How often do you, do you watch one game and you put the stats in, or how do you guys go about doing that? Yeah, so it's actually kind of funny because I had a friend text me about this the other day. Like, he was following a game that he bet on, and I was like, yeah, I'm actually doing that game right now. And he goes, wait, wait, he's like, you're the one who's helping change the score? I'm like, yeah. So, like, a lot of times we'll go in, we get the schedule. Uh, normally we have anywhere from two to four games at one time. They don't really want to overload you. So, like, I might have a 7 o'clock game and an 8 o'clock game, so they might overlap. But, yeah, the game starts. We have a feed coming from the, the people at the local uh, hockey rinks, and we make sure that the when the goals and the penalties just come in at the right times and the right players and sometimes the feeds go down so if the feeds go down the games are still going on, on the television and we're still watching and if a goal goes in then we're manually recording who scored and putting it in because that's what all ESPN is about having the the real live time and accurate information for you guys so you know we talked a lot and I, I jokingly called you Moneyball on the intro there because you you look at games totally differently than most people and I'm, I'm going to be completely honest with you about that. I learned a lot from you. You and I uh, worked extremely close on a lot of our scouts together and we were pretty successful in most of those scouts I'd have to say because of what you bring which is analytics and analysis. You are a big Ken Palm fan. Um how does ES before we get into Ken Palm, how does ESPN view Ken Palm in your time that you've worked for ESPN? So since I've been there, Ken Palm has become a really big deal. Uh, a lot of times when you might turn on ESPN and you see like the college basketball live shows and you see Seth Greenberg and some of these coaches, they will mention Ken Palm and refer to Ken Palm. 90% of the time, if they have a stat that they're referring to or they talk about a game and how a team might struggle, they're lo- they're looking at Kempom. And th- the reason why it's such a big deal is because of how accurate it is. Now, I've been using it for 9 to 10 years now, but I think recently uh, it's become very popular, not just among the people at ESPN, but a lot of coaches like to look at it. Now, some of them, you know, they won't understand what they're looking at. Some people are more old school and they don't prefer analytics. Um, and then some other people want to get into it, but they don't really have that right person on their staff to explain it to them in a way that they can understand. But yeah, ESPN, if you any articles that you see online, you'll see a lot of times when they're referring, especially when we get closer to March Madness here and they give you their you know, teams to avoid or teams to pick, you'll see a lot of uh, references to Ken Palm. So for people that are listening that don't really know what Ken Palm is, 
can you give me like a layman's term on exactly what it is, how it was started, and what it helps you do? Okay, so when I explain analytics to people, the easiest way to explain it is analytics are a tool. Uh, oftentimes, as coaches and players or former players or even just fans in the stands, we, we, we view the game with our eyes. So we see flashy things. Maybe it's a windmill dunk or a three in someone's face or a player pumping up the crowd after a big play. You know, those are the kind of things that stick in our mind when we see it. But the Ken Palm site goes right through all that and it gets to what's actually happening. So like, for example, you might have a player on the floor who just stole the ball and went down through a dunk. So immediately as a fan or a coach, like, okay, he's having a big impact, but maybe that same game, he's actually struggling defensively. And the man he's guarding has blown by him. He scored, you know, eight to 10 points, but those are things that don't show up in the box score, things like defensive efficiency and stuff. So for people that don't know Ken Palm, it's simply a website, you know, you, you, you pay a yearly uh, price um you log in and you'll see things you'll see terms such as efficiency and offensive efficiency and defensive efficiency and efficiency simply means like when you have the ball it's referring to possessions how many points do you score per possession how many points do you give up per possession so without getting into too much detail yet it's just an it's a it's a it's a way of of breaking down teams in a more of a general way overall and then breaking them down by player, and you can get specific with individual players. So if I'm not mistaken, you and I used this to a point when we were at Shenandoah, but we, yes. but we, you kind of created your own algorithm, didn't you? And you could kind of like come up with your own Division Three Ken Palm projection, is that correct? Yeah, so I still use the same formulas that Ken Palm used. I had to vary them slightly because the Division Three game is a little bit different than the Division One level. Whereas Division, so in Division Three, you might know this. You've heard of the team from Greenville. They mm-hmm. call they call it they play the system, yep. which they basically trap the whole game and they full court press and they're trying to score 150 points. And so Division Three, you have these teams that play at a certain pace that kind of throws off some of the data so you have to adjust it a little bit but yeah essentially i developed it for division three and there's actually a site now in division three that that can do that for us so i i wouldn't have to do that now but back when i was with you that wasn't available Mm -hmm. so but yeah you can get score projections you can look at all kinds of strengths and weaknesses um from all the teams um of course you have to know exactly how to read it you need to know you know certain averages like you know like what's a good number for three point percentage what's a bad number because if you don't know that then it's gonna be hard to really determine you know the numbers overall um but what i would what i would simply say is that again it's a tool at the end of the day you know good players will help you win more than the analytics however i do believe at some point in these leagues or that the competitive advantage that you can get from using analytics will put you over the top. Cause nowadays I really believe the parity with some of these teams is mm-hmm. very even, you know, parity's a, a good word. Cause we're, we're going to talk about that here in a second and the parity of the basketball game right now and how it leads to the, my favorite time of year, which is March madness. And I know it's yours as well. We're going to hit on that in a second, but looking at Ken Palm, when you and I would do scouts, and the, the scouts that stand out the most to me is the Lynchburg on the road game. When we beat them in overtime down there, and we knew where their players were taking shots and their percentages from those places on the floor on that scout, and how we would run them off the spot or run them off the line, were you able to use that at your other stops to be successful? Yes. So it is amazing what you can find on a shot chart. You know, a lot of people, the old school, like, ah, you know, shot chart, yeah, circle, make, X, miss. But, like, what's funny is we all used to be former players. Mm-hmm. And and I will tell you as former players that we all have spots on the floor that we that we call our hot spots or places that we try to get to that we know we have an advantage. So, for example, when I used to play, I used to love the left wing and the left corner. You know, some people love the top of the key or just the corners in general. But what we did at Shenandoah was, you know, we'd print off a shot chart and we'd Mm -hmm. see, okay, so this kid's a really good three-point shooter. 
he shoots near 40%, but where is he actually taking the shots on the floor? And what we found was when he was on the right side of the floor, he wasn't even as close to effective as he was on the left side of the floor. So what we were able to do is we were able to shift our defense to overextend when he was on the left side. Whereas on the right side, we almost more encouraged him to shoot. But the thing is he wouldn't, he wouldn't shoot because he didn't want to. And now what I learned at, at Christopher Newport from um, coach Kikorian, who's an amazing coach through preparation is that we don't want the players to overthink. That's the key. We want to give them information, but we don't want to information overload them. Mm-hmm. So what we used to do was more let them play freely on the offensive end. Obviously, we have plays and stuff, but we want them to. We want we don't want them to think while they're playing on offense. However, on defense, though, because defense is so based on your effort level, we thought that we could give them more information to focus on on defense under the floor. And when you saw our game against Lynchburg together, we will, we were able to see that a lot of the things that you can find in a shot chart and the amount of shots they take from a certain spot is, is, is mostly true from game to game. I mean, I remember in, in that year also, I think we beat Randolph Macon, if I'm not mistaken. And that we beat them down there. And it was the same situation. They had a couple kids who I won't mention names on here, but they had some shooters that would not shoot off dribble. Remember that guy? He was a catch-and-shoot three-point guy, but as soon as we rushed up one of them and made him put the ball on the floor, he was so much less effective so that when we were down there, we knew we could fly at certain guys. Other ones shot better off the dribble, so we gave him a step to make him think that, you know, it, it just made sense how you and I worked together with that. I honestly, there's days that I miss that. I'm thinking, like, God, like, we, we're, I'd be prepping for a game, and I'm thinking, man, if Jeremy was here looking at these stats with me, we might be able to, like, run this kid ragged and he's going to lose his mind at the high school level which um which you would be very good at doing with me if, if we ever can find a bench that we both can sit on and have a whole bunch of fun we we definitely have a lot of fun doing that so um who would be you know you were around the game a while at the division three level who were some of the toughest teams that you played against and players that you a liked on your roster as well as ones you hated going against when you were doing the analytical stuff okay so from okay, so from an analytical perspective, at Christopher Newport, when I was there uh, a few years back, we were a defensive-minded team. Not that we weren't good offensively, we focused first on defense. So the first thing that would always come up is how are we going to guard them? And the teams that gave us the biggest fits were the teams where, and you see this now with the Warriors and other teams in the league, is a team where all five guys on the floor at the same time can shoot the three ball. Yep, and it's not as common as you would think, but the teams that can pull it off. And I'll give an example. And they used to give us fits was this York, Pennsylvania. Yep. They, they all five players on the floor could shoot. So what that meant was there was less helping off of like a big, let's say in the paint. So we all, we have to press up on them on the perimeter, which created driving lanes. And any time if someone were able to come over and try and help, which we did play help D mm-hmm. there were kicks to other shooters. So it, those are the kind of teams that we feared the most so like york would be one uh we ended up losing in the final fourth to swarthmore and i know one of your other guests dave material talked about their heartbreaking loss to swarthmore that same year which ironically enough we probably would have potentially played dave's randolph making team if they had won that game but so swarthmore another team that could really shoot the ball they had quality bigs that could make post moves and also hit the mid-range jump shot so those are those are kind of the teams that we struggled with, um, you know, if a team had a really, really tall, good bit, we didn't make it to the championship, but if we had Wisconsin Oshkosh had like a six ten big, you know, that would have presented some problems where we might've had to come over and double them in the post. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, the easy, now the easiest teams to prepare for, I will say analytically are teams where multiple players on the floor cannot shoot the three because in that circumstance, you can now build in help and, there's less driving lanes. You can you, you can force them to do things that they don't want to do and help create advantages uh, in our way. Yeah, the gaps become smaller. Yep. What about players? You, you coached some All-Americans down at Christopher Newport. Who did you have fun coaching down there? Uh, so one of the things that I took a lot of pride in was player development with three-point shooting. Yep. Uh, I, I was a shooter when I played, and I know you were a big-time shooter too. I love working with shooters. I, I think – Analytically speaking, I think the most important stat is shooting. At the end, at the end of the day, and, that, and specifically, I mean three-point shooting um, and just overall efficiency. 
Um, you know, a lot of guys out there can score 30 points, but it might take them 25 shots to do so and the free throw line. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know I got to work with two of the best shooters in Christopher Newport history and uh, Aaron McFarland and Jason Agner. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, I worked with Jason Agner the year that he broke Aaron's record. And what, I, what I'll say is that, you know, a lot of times the stuff that we do as assistants, and you know this, doesn't necessarily get seen not only in a box score, but just in general. But there were hours, hours before the game, after the game, leading up where we would be in the gym rebounding for these guys and working with, you know, how they get open and what spots on the floor and different kinds of, you know, transition threes, spot up threes, off the dribble threes. And it was just repetition, repetition, repetition. And I'm, and I'm a big believer in, in preparation. It's one of my you know, biggest, um, biggest things that I, I try to, you know, tell other coaches, like, you know, if you prepare, like it's a game, then when it comes time for the game, these guys are performing the game. And that's, that was my mantra with Jason. You know, we, we shot every shot in the gym as if it was like a game winner and he knew it. So when it came time to make the big shot in the game, he was ready for it. I know Jason shot what, like 43% from three or something like that. Yeah, I don't have the exact numbers, but he made he made over 123s that season, which 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 smashed the previous record. And I'm I'm I feel like it's going to have a hard time, you know, being broken at this point. You know, so it's funny. I pulled up the stats while we're talking here. So Jason has 365 career made threes, and um, he had done that in 118 games. Aaron McFarlane was at 266. So Jason's beat him by basically 100 threes so far in his career, and he's still participating. Jermaine Woods is who I had to go against. Him and Jeremy Romeo, that's who I had to play against. And those dudes were just flat-out shooters. And I had they were fun to go against, but, man, they were a pain in the ass sometimes. Jermaine Woods, did you did that name ever come up when you were down there at CNU? So... I'm a sir. I'm, 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 I assume you know who the great coach Ross is. You know what? Ross. I had Roland's name written down here. I was going to ask you about Roland. Roland's my guy. We had a whole bunch of fun going back and forth when I played against him, and every single time I saw him on the road, he gave me a big old hug. I love that dude. Yeah, he was one of my mentors when I was there, and we used to have. We, he used to tell me stories all the time about how he got certain players through recruiting, uh, which players he really liked, and and like how I would bring up a player nowadays, and he would just give me a look like, man, he's got nothing on this guy that I recruited, and like, and I'd look up stats, and we talk about old teams and old players, and sometimes we'd even be on the phone, and one of them would call him up because they still talk to him to this day, and they, they, I haven't got a chance to talk to a couple of them, but yeah, he he had some big time players rolling through Christopher Newport guys that you, w- you wouldn't think would go to a, di- a division three school well like Lamont Struthers who scored 2700 points there played oh yeah the, he only made the NBA played, no only deal. played in the NBA right and then so I played against Anton Sinclair that dude scored 1736 points and had a thousand rebounds in his career yeah, amazing uh, amazing. unbelievable and he was a lefty on the block when he got you down there, it was like Kevin McHale's dungeon. Like, you were done. You were either fouling him or giving up, you know, buckets at that time. And then, you know, I can still I could still read off the starting five from when they were number two in the country and we beat them at home. Who their point guard was, which is Albert Haskins. Jermaine Woods was at the two. Carlos Hurd was at the three. Sinclair was at the four. And Terry Gray was at the five. I remember their offense. I remember what CJ did and didn't do. That was an unbelievable win for us at Shenandoah. But it's pretty cool to look back through these stats while you and I are talking. And, you know, it, it's interesting to see how good these guys really were. And, and you know, they, there's some serious well, players well, that went there. Well, what I'll there. add is it, it's amazing the amount of history and amazing players that they have brought into that university. And to think that, you know, the school hasn't been a, around a, a, you know, a long, long time. But, like, when we made this, the Final Four, it was only our second ever Final Four. But just the, the history of them making the Elite Eights and the Sweet Sixteens. And, and I, I, I bet you, I wasn't there, but I bet you that they, they probably got close a few times. And they probably were, you know, had a little bad luck in the tournament. But they had some quality squads. Yeah, they, they really did. CJ did an unbelievable job, Um, you know, I, I saw him on the road a little bit before he passed away with cancer. He was a, he was a good dude. I, I kind of miss, you know, when people pass away and you don't realize what they meant to you at the time, you look back and you're like, wow, he was a pretty good guy to, you know, have in your corner who uh, rooted for you. And, but Roland used to talk trash from the bench to me. And if I had him on the phone right now, he'd laugh, but he would admit that, like, Hey, what you going to do today? Jermaine got your number. What you going to do today? And I'd hit a couple threes, and I'd try and look at him like, who's guarding me? 
so Roland and I had that relationship, and and they were fun. They were fun days to go, go compete against him. Would you uh, would you think of coaching in the Freeman Center? Did you guys cut the lights out for starting lineups and have all that nonsense? So going? I absolutely love being able to coach in the Freeman Center, um, and it's amazing when that place can get super packed. Um, you know, sometimes uh, my first year they, they had some games on some some Sunday afternoons where it wasn't as packed, but when they got the students in there. And it was like a big time game, whether it was a senior day or a York coming in who became our rival. So it's funny is it used to be Salisbury. They yep. were the big rival yep. before I got there. They had like back to back to back or back to back conference tournament championship appearances against each other. There was a buzzer buzzer beater by Tim Daly, all American. This is all before I got there. But when I got there, it became York and we had these big time battles with York. But it was actually my job to turn the lights out. So I actually took pride in it because I had to sync it with the lights and the music. But, yeah, it it, it was different because, I mean, Shenandoah was fun because we had the small gym and that cool atmosphere before they switched to the new gym. But it was a a different feeling being in there for the starting lineups and and the Freeman Center. We opened the Freeman Center. Oh, so you you were the first opponent. If we didn't open it in regular play, and and I want to make sure I, I don't mess that up. I'll look it up while we're here talking. But... I, we might have been the first conference game in the Freeman Center, and they cut the lights out, and it was almost like, are you kidding me? Like, what in the hell is this? And we knew we were going against, you know, a ranked team in the country, and it was just never easy to play in that facility. Um, I, it's neat to go back and see it now. I, I did some recruiting in there not too long ago, and, uh, you know, there was long, not too long ago. That was four years ago now I did recruiting in that facility. But it was really interesting to go in there and kind of see what that was all about. But... They do a nice job putting that thing together. I wish Shenandoah would have uh, looked at the Freeman Center layout a little bit more than than what they did because the bleachers underneath the baskets make a big difference. And, you know, it's just a huge winning environment down there. And people believe in the captains, especially in Newport News. It's a big deal to go to a captain's game. Oh, it, it definitely is. In my last year there, we, we went 18-0 and at home. Did you really? We took a lot of pride at winning on the home floor. And, and the opponents knew. You could see it on the faces when the players walked on the on the court. They they were not expecting to come in and beat us on at our home floor. So, speaking of home floor, March Madness, I, I consider you like the genius of March Madness. How do you go about your picks? How, I mean, you win like all your damn brackets that you do. How do you go about doing that? What do you put into the making of your brackets? Because if I'm not mistaken. It would take you like three or four days to do your bracket. Like you weren't able to just flip it on a Sunday night. Like you were still working at it on Wednesday, if I'm not mistaken. Oh yeah, see you. Have, see, wow, you have a really good memory. I uh, I still have people that many people that text me before the tournament and get ask me for my opinions, and I will give them. But like I still take that many days because I I really and people that know me close too will tell you that I I've been studying the tournament. Um, for the last 20 years, uh, I kind of changed my focus to focus on the last five years when the shot clock changed. Mm-hmm. I think that was a really big deal back in the back when it was 35 seconds. Teams could really slow the pace down, but now that it's changed to 30, um, I've really focused on those last five years. And and so I'll just give some pointers to people. Like, so the first thing I look at is at the end of the day, how 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 do you win your bracket? A lot of times the pools are set up in a way where you get the most amount of points from picking your final four teams and mm-hmm. the champions. Okay. Um, you know, people get caught up with the first and second round because, oh, there's so many games and they love the Thursday, Friday. And don't get me wrong, I love Thursday, Friday of the, of the tournament. This year it'll be Friday, Saturday. Um, but you get the most points picking the champion. So, you know, things that I found is there is actually a way to pick the national champion every year. And, if you go, uh, I'm Ken Palm, and I figured this out. There is a certain efficiency that your team needs to have, and a certain offensive efficiency that your team needs to have to win the championship. And surprisingly, and I will just share this now because it's very early, there are four teams currently in the country that have the metrics to win a national championship. And that is Gonzaga, that is Baylor, that is Michigan. And actually, that is it, because Iowa, who I thought was one of them, does not have the defensive efficiency they need. So there's a Gonzaga, Baylor, and Michigan are your three options at this point in time. It's funny you say that, because I literally pulled Ken Palm up as we're talking. So you Gonzaga, Baylor, Michigan, Iowa, Villanova, Houston, Virginia, Wisconsin, Texas, and Illinois are the top ten. We'll just leave it at that. Do you see anybody from four down? You mentioned Iowa, so we'll, we'll swap them. 
So Villanova to Illinois, do you see anybody in that realm having an opportunity of making a run at the national title? Or are you going to stick with those three? So I, so I am, I am a big believer in Wisconsin. Okay. And I know that they've had a couple of games that have kind of been head scratchers and um, you know, they're, they're a veteran group. Okay. So that they believe they start five people that are either seniors, juniors, or grad people. I mean, they're like the oldest roster in the country. And, and for all those out there that, that question, why does that matter? And I always say this, there are very, very few teams that win that are freshman loaded or your best player is a freshman. Now you can point to the Anthony Davis season at Kentucky. Um, you know, Duke did pull it off with Julio Okafor, but you can look at the Zion Williamson team did not mm-hmm. make the final four. Correct. You can look at the John wall team, believe they lost in the elite eight. They did. Um, a lot of the teams that end up winning have that guy, that upper classman guy who's who's been through it, like the Kemba, the um, you know who was it? The um, the the, the Villanova backcourt had Brunson and, and Divincenzo. Th- those are upperclassmen dudes. The Virginia had Kyle Guy and Ty Jerome who lived uh, being upset by a 16 seed the year prior. I mean, these are guys that you, they have to go do something to really be ready for this. But what I will say is this: Wisconsin. Um, Wisconsin definitely has a team that can pull it off. I would like to think that Texas has a team that can pull it off, which Shaka, my only concern is that they don't have a lot of tournament success. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these guys, they'd be doing this for the first time, and that does worry me. Um, but I will throw this out there to you, and this might get so, some backlash from people. A lot of people out there are already crowning Gonzaga the national champion. Okay. And I just want to put a little pause on that and and just say that – in my research that I found, there has been no team that has ever won the national championship in the in, in recently playing that tempo that they play. They currently, and I'll look this up while I'm with you, play the eighth fastest tempo in the country with 75 possessions a game on average. Mm-hmm. Okay. Previously, in the last five years, which is what I've studied, the team that closest got closest to that mark was North Carolina. 70 possessions a game, they ranked 54. Was that and when they that won it? That same North Carolina team really struggled in that second round game against Arkansas and probably should have lost. And the reason why I will put some pause on Gonzaga is this, and you probably know this too. There are two things that tend to happen in the NCAA tournament. One, the game slows down. Mm-hmm. And I've always said that when a fast team plays a slow team, it's much easier to slow a team down than to speed them up. So that is the first thing. In the NCAA tournament, you get slower games, mm-hmm. less possessions. And the other thing that people forget is refs call too many fouls. They, they do not let them play. They over-officiate. So Gonzaga, primarily six, maybe seven-man rotation at the moment, probably they're, if you look on Kempom, they're not even top 50 in, in defensive fouling. So like they will foul you. That's what happens when you play fast. They will foul. Um, I just worry for a team, and I'll look this up while we're here, a team that only – they they rank 311th in the country in three-point attempts, mm-hmm. and they rank 337th in points coming from threes. And keep in mind, there's only about 350 teams. So they, they get the 13th fewest points from threes. So my fear would be if they got a matchup, in the tournament against a team that really defends the paint and has a really strong two point defense. So, you know, maybe like a Michigan or like a Texas or a Texas tech, like they just lost a Texas tech. I believe the last time they were in the tournament, like those are the teams that would scare me with Gonzaga. So I'm a huge believer in, in the Baylor bears that right now, Baylor would be my national championship pick. And I know I'd be in the minority with probably 70 to 80% of the country picking Gonzaga. Probably like ninety percent of Texas, outside of the ones <laughs> oh, that are right. rooting yeah. for the Longhorns. <laughs> yeah, I mean, actually, yeah, Texas, Texas is having a heck of a year. I mean, them, Baylor, and Texas Tech. I mean, that state's doing very well. That they are. I mean, it, well, I mean, I'm looking at the Ken Palm. So you got two in Baylor, Texas Tech's nine, Texas or sorry, Texas is nine, Texas Tech is thirteen. That's yep. that usually doesn't happen. That's more of a football state. It usually doesn't happen a lot. Um, you well, know, they got some really good coaches down there. Chris Beard is an amazing coach. Yes, Shaka's finally 
Shock has finally got the talent and 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 the upper class to try to pull this off with the freshman five star Brown as well. So you know, it's funny you say that. Shaka, he had the uh, havoc when he was at VCU, the speeding of the game and all that stuff, as you like to call it. He's kind of gone away from that. That I don't think that worked well enough. I mean, I think he made the comment in the one press conference when he took the Texas job. How is Havoc going to work in the Big 12? And he kind of made like a smart-ass comment at his at his presser. Like, you know, I forget who they beat to go to the Final Four, but he like, how did that work in Wichita or wherever they played that game? And, you know, it did catch up with him. But he doesn't seem to be playing as hectic of a pace now as he used to, and he's more efficient from that. So sports, and I always say this too, sports are like copycat. Copy. They're all copycat leagues. They 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 can they can try different gimmicks. Like uh, take take football for example. They had the the, the Dolphins with Ronnie Brown had the Wildcat for a year. Mm-hmm. The the Niners were huge with the read option with Kaepernick, and then the, and then the Ravens uh, got onto the read option, and, and and it worked for a bit. But then teams start to catch on. So maybe in football, they go out of the way to hit the quarterback hard so they stop doing the read option. Wildcat, they load the box. They figured out how to – they figured that they really weren't going to pass out of it, so they were able to slow it down. Basketball, I think that it was it was a good move. It was, a, it was big for the team's identity. Mm-hmm. They bought into it. The fans bought into it. The nation bought into it. They were playing in a league where there wasn't as many elite guards, so when they got the defenders that could actually pull it off, it was much, much more effective. Um, but I just think over time, what they probably found was, and, and he still has this problem with this current Texas team, is they foul too much. And in the tournament, they call everything. Mm-hmm. And if you give a team 30 free throws in a game, you're just asking for them to, if not win, to hang around. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm, I'm looking now. Texas ranks 270th in forcing turnovers. So he and he's gone down from... And I'll look it up. Yeah, Chaka at VCU enforcing turnovers. He ranked number one, number one, number one, and number eleven in those four years. And now they're two hundred and seventy third. So, like you said, they really scaled it back. Yeah, they have. And, and I want to correct myself. VCU beat Kansas seventy one to sixty one in San Antonio, Texas, in the South Region to go to the Final Four back in two thousand and eleven. So yep. they did beat a Big Twelve team. So that's where he was coming from in that press conference. I do remember him saying something like that. Um, watching any games today? Uh, I know you're working you know, tonight. I haven't actually got a chance to, I mean, I'll pull it up right now while we're talking. I haven't really got a chance to look at, uh, some of the games. Um, you know, for, for me, um, I know some people out there, they, 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 they like have like a team that they root for, or, you know, they just follow a certain team. I, I like to find games where I'm like, obviously, you know, I'm a UConn fan. They yeah. You guys were playing so Creighton today UConn on the road. Plays Creighton at noon today. Obviously we're missing our best player, so it's kind of hard to get super excited for that. With <laughs> um, you know, I have a couple of teams that I'm keeping an eye on. Any chance I get to watch them, um, like Houston. Um, Houston's playing Temple at 12 on CBS. Like you saw Houston was very high up in the Ken Palm rankings. Yeah, he's done a hell, um, hell of a job down there in Houston getting that thing rolling, hadn't he? Um, they, they, you want to see a team that plays defense and re- rebounds the basketball, you should watch Houston. But mm-hmm. um yeah, I mean there there are some uh, there's some sneaky good games today. Two o'clock, you got Baylor, Oklahoma State, and I know Oklahoma State if they didn't knock off West Virginia, they almost knocked off West Virginia. And they've been in some really tight basketball games. I think them in Kansas had a buzzer beater, and they beat Kansas. <clears throat> they or... beat they beat Kansas, and I called that on the show the day before. I said Kansas struggles playing at Oklahoma State, which I'm going to make this statement here on the show. You're going to tell me I'm crazy. Going into Oklahoma State is a very difficult place to play. I think Cade Cunningham is going to have an unbelievable game today. I'm not saying that Oklahoma State's going to beat Baylor. I think it's going to be a lot closer than the nine points that the Vegas bookies have put on it. I, I think I think the game has a lot of potential to be close. I, I just I was fortunate enough to watch the entire Baylor game against Texas Tech, and they impressed me. Uh, Mac McClung had an amazing game, and Texas Tech was really pushing him around there for a bit. But Baylor was able to go on the road and pull out the win when all the momentum was with Texas Tech. And I think one of their best players, Butler, let me see, I, I believe, yeah, one of their best players, Butler, was um, two for 11 in the game. And at one point, he was 0 for 6 from 3. So the fact that Baylor came out with that and that win was really impressive. But um, I will say, though, in this particular matchup, 
Baylor as a team is the third best three-point shooting team in the country. Mm-hmm. And they take a fair bit amount of threes. What Oklahoma State gives up defensively are threes. Okay. They, they're taught to defend paint first. So I, I would definitely be watching the three-point line for Baylor today. If Baylor is hitting double-digit threes, it's over, and they're shooting and they're shooting thirty six percent or higher. <laughs> Baylor wins this game. If Baylor takes thirty threes and makes ten, you you have a case for Oklahoma State. So I would watch the three point line today in that one. You know, I, I miss the times that you and I can sit in the office like we would do prior to you know a late tip. We'd have a shoot around. We go get breakfast and we go back and watch college game day together. And the conversation we're having now, what a lot of people don't understand on the podcast that I'm going to share is this was a normal conversation for you and me for like multiple years, wasn't it? Oh yeah, it was. This was, this was, uh, this was basically every Saturday before or after. Yeah, it was even college football. I mean, I remember you being a high state fan, the high state Michigan game, like you were about to lose your mind in the office the one day. Well, people, people, <clears throat> my dad's from Columbus and people from Columbus know that we call them the team up North. That game is more than just the game. Uh-huh. That's like that's like bragging rights for the whole rest of the year. So <laughs> that's a big deal. One of my assistant coaches, Coach Span, who listens to the show, he is from Columbus. He's a Ohio State fan. Our rival team color is red. I allow him to wear the Buckeye Scarlet. That's not red to me. So he can wear Buckeye Scarlet with no issues. We have a lot of fun with that. But he refuses to to say M on a lot of stuff, just like they kind of talk about. <laughs> And it is the team up north to him. He does not refer to them as Michigan ever. So, Coach, well, I'm giving I you a shout-out on that. Buckeye fans are excited that Jim Harbaugh got an extension because he has still, yet to this day, been able to beat Ohio State, and they still rewarded him with more years. So I think I think uh, I could speak freely and say we're all okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, how do you feel about Hurley being the coach at UConn? What's your thoughts on that? Um, I like Hurley. Um, I... I I, I hope that they continue to recruit at the level that they've been recruiting these last two years. I, I keep saying that they're getting commits and they're getting people in the top 100, which is where UConn belongs, being back in the Big East. Um, he, he, you know, he's feisty. So, uh, you know, at some points, I, I wasn't sure if it'd be the right fit um, per se right away because Kevin Ollie was a feisty guy. So it was kind of like very similar mm-hmm. in that. But I think that Hurley is very is is amazing at getting um his players to play hard and deliver in big moments Mm -hmm. um you know i think sometimes they play down to their competition but i i I would not be surprised in another year or so that uconn's getting national attention um they did reach the top 25 poll recently for like the first time and Four years, I believe. Yep, so, twenty-three. Um, I know that excited a lot of us up here in Connecticut, but yeah, we're just, we're positive. I mean, of course, James Booknight, potential NBA player, he's still out with his elbow injury, so would not be surprised if they struggle with Creighton today. But yeah, no, there's excitement up here for sure. Because like I said, I told you this, we don't have a pro team up right. here, so this is our team in Connecticut. And the women, of course, but you know, they're another level of good. They had a big win last night, or the other night, against Tennessee, right? Didn't it, two nights ago they beat Tennessee? <clears throat> uh, excuse me. Yeah, they uh, they got a chance to play Tennessee. And uh, growing up, that used to be quite an event. Pat Summit, Gino, Tarazi going into Tennessee, Kara Lawson. That matchup, I, I'm glad for women's basketball that they were able to get that. I will be back. That's the, it, it, it means a lot to them. But so, yeah, and, and for all sports, I mean that's that's a, I mean it's big time. And if I'm not mistaken, didn't the the UConn women wear Summit on the back of their shirt? Everybody wore Summit as the last I, name. I believe so. And 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 what I will say about that, and you probably agree with this, I think rivalries are so important in sports. Yes. And I know you guys have a big one with the North and the South game. Like it not only builds to that game. But it just helps create the attention that you need for your program, having that big opponent and knowing it's coming up and knowing that your fan base cares and their fan base of that the better. I mean, it, it's something, you know, obviously I coached at Goretti, which was the private school here in town, and I thought with our opening tip-off tournament that we had, the MAIT was packed. And it was one of those events where it was a lot of fun. A lot of people came out. It was a big um, event that was covered locally by the papers and TV and stuff. Being a part of the North South game is like that feeling on steroids. 
I mean, I had alumni from, like, the barbershop reaching out, like, yo, you got to get a win against these dudes. Like, it was completely crazy going into those games. And then you get a win, and, and you know, the techs come back, and, you know, I finally, I was not fortunate enough to beat North right off the bat. It had a lot of games to get the monkey off my back. But when it finally came off, man, I was getting a lot of messages and texts, and it felt really good to kind of make sure that I took care of the alumni base there at South High. Oh, and I'll never forget, and uh, I know we got to wrap this up soon. I'll never forget the uh, who you and I were together, and we helped Shenandoah knock off Hampton Sydney. Oh, that was so I awesome. Can't, I can't remember. Was it overtime or double overtime? But it was an overtime game, and overtime. I just yeah, and I'll, the gym was packed, and 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 I I want to say that Sydney actually banked in a half court shot either to to go to overtime or it would have or it would have forced double, but it was after the buzzer. But it was it, it was an amazing game. It was the point guard Michael for Hampton Sydney, and it would have forced it to double overtime. That's when Malcolm got that like semi breakaway and just cracked it on two. Hampton Sydney guys, remember oh, that yeah. clip? I think I still have the video, or at least the picture <laughs> from that dunk. <laughs> yeah, that, that, but but that's what. But do you know what I'm? Do you know what I mean though? When you have a that game, did you see what that meant to the Shenandoah community? Like, the, oh, the, huge. Like at that time, because we had trouble beating Macon and Wesleyan, like Sydney kind of was the rivalry at that mm-hmm. point. Yep. And like that, the, the atmosphere in that gym, like as coaches, we live for that. The roof came off. I mean, I can still get goosebumps. And I have the clip on my phone. Like, I still have that clip of Malcolm's dunk. I think it's nine seconds long. But just the feeling of watching him go up and just yoke that on that guy's head, the roof came off the gym. And if I'm not mistaken, it was an and one. Well, all I'll say about that is, what a, what, what a basketball player. The amount of points that he was able to score in that short period of time and, 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 and the pride that he took in being a senior and, and being a leader his senior year, mm-hmm. uh, I, I was impressed. Because remember, I, I, I was gone for a year. Mm-hmm. So I missed that I missed that in-between year with him. But he, he really showed me a lot. I mean, he came back and he was a much more improved shooter. And he was a heck of a player. He, uh, you know, Malk is one of those kids that I'll treasure forever. I was fortunate enough to get him right out of high school from Cesar Chavez in D.C., and he came to HCC with me, and, you know, he kind of slid down a little bit of a path. Nothing bad. I mean, he just, you know, he went and he had a kid, and he started working, and I was like, dude, I'll never forget the comment and the conversation we had standing in the radio shack outside of Capitol Heights in D.C. I said, he's, well, coach, I got a job. I'm like, yeah, that's right. And this is nothing against people that worked at Radio Shack before they closed. I said, Malk, you got a job. A college degree will get you a career. And he thought about it, and I'll never forget, like three or four days later, he called. He's like, I'm in. And he came up, scored 1,337 career points in three years in the Princeton, which is scary in itself. But what he could do when the pressure was on and make plays around the rim with both hands as a left-handed natural player was unreal. But I remember players, players like him, and players like Marcus Carter, Aaron McFarland, Jason Agner that I got to be with, like they make it all worth it. They, they, this just to see the grind that they put in and, and what they overcome to get to where they are. I mean, it, it makes it worth it. I still remember we lost this game, and I still lose sleep over every once in a while. Uh, Virginia Wesleyan on the road, and Malcolm dunks the ball going down the middle, and that like give and go play. You, you still sent me that play like back in early, uh, early fall. Do you remember sending yeah. that? Uh, so, so Dom Parker, my really good friend, he, he, his mom passed away and he had been gone from our bench. If you remember for a few games yep. and he, that was his first game back. And that was, uh, our combined scout, you and I, and yep. he, he, he looked like Russell Westbrook when he, when he split the double team and then dunked on the big, the, 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 the opposing fans didn't even know how to act because they, there was like a gasp because it just kind of came out of nowhere. But the ease of his athleticism for able to, he was able to pull that dunk off was it caught, it caught our bench off guard. It caught me off guard. You probably knew he was capable of that. I, I didn't even know he was about to do that. So. I knew he was capable of it, but he'd never done it in traffic. So as soon as he rose up and kept going, I was like, oh, hell. Here he comes. Well, he he he, uh, he saw another player that should not be named on the other side of the floor, and it got personal. It so. did. It did. We had a little bit of fun battling against those guys. Corey Corey was a tough a tough cat to go against too. I mean, say what you want, he was a pretty solid player when the when the rubber met the road as well. And uh, I never I'd never seen Corey Moore play. Never met Corey Moore, and I still remember to this day. 
uh, when he hit a three in our gym and he looked right at us and he said, <laughs> they can't guard me. And I, I mean, what were we supposed to say? At that point, I think he had 30 points. I mean, we couldn't guard him. So yeah. I'll go quick to two quick stories here. And I got to tell you one thing that's going to make you laugh about your Danny Hurley comments. And so don't let me forget that. So okay. we're playing in the conference tournament at Methodist University in the USA South. And it was my sophomore year, so it would have been 2002. Jermaine Woods should have been the player of the year. Like, no doubt in my mind, should have been the conference player of the year. Ronald Merriweather, who was my teammate at Shenandoah, who was probably the best player I ever played with in college. Ronald was unbelievable, from Germany, great kid. Every once in a while, we still catch up here and there. We get to talk. He has AU teams he brings back to the States. But Ronald won player of the year, which we should have awarded him, right? Jermaine was pissed. So we're at the dinner the night before round one where Ronald gets named player of the year. Jermaine gets named first team all USA South. They go up, they take the the picture like they usually do. On the way back to his seat, he threw the trophy in the trash. Okay? So we beat Greensboro. I luckily hit a shot at the buzzer. I didn't play much. I played in the first half, didn't get in the second half. Coach Harris said we needed, we're down three with uh, three or four seconds to go on the clock. It wasn't a lot of time. I'm raw, have not stepped on the floor in 20 plus minutes. I inbound the ball. The play was set up for Tyson to go to the nail turnaround pitch. I'd be wide open. Everybody funnel with Tyson. I caught it, banged it. We go to overtime. We end up winning in overtime. We play CNU the next day. Jermaine scored 30. In the first half, every three he hit, he would look at our bench and go, give me that shit. Give me my trophy. That, some, that, some players are built like that. That was Jermaine. I mean, and that story, you asked Ronald Ross, that story, he went off in the first half. We had no choice. Like, he just crushed us that night. And he ended up going on and he won the... Uh, MVP of the tournament. They cut the nets down and they went to the NCAA tournament. So, so let me let me really quick right before you get to this Hurley comment and we wrap up. Uh, what is your take as a coach? So I've studied this analytically and I've listened to Dean Oliver talk about this. And uh, what is your take at the end of a game? Mm-hmm. Your team is up three. Okay. And whether there's twenty seconds, ten seconds is irrelevant at this point. It's simply, do you play it out or do you foul them? As a coach, where, where do you stand with that? Right okay, now? so I'm going to give you kind of my Jay Billis answer. I agree with Jay a little bit on this. And, and, that's, and the only reason I bring that up is because he has the same argument every year on college game day. Once you get under a certain amount of time, you need to foul. I think you kind of let your team take care of itself early. I'm a firm believer when you get down around 15 to 12 seconds, you got to be looking to foul, and here's why. Because if you allow them to get into the lane, get a paint touch, get a kick or a swing, that they practice rhythm shots, you're, you're giving yourself up. But the whole mantra of giving that foul up to get to, you know, look, if they make the front end and they miss the next one and there's a tip out and a guy bangs a three, we deserve to lose that game because we should have rebounded that ball. That's just my personal take on it. What is your take on the Dean Oliver? So it's actually funny that you said practice. So that's the key word, practice, because it goes both ways with that. So I'm a big believer in fouling. Okay. I've always been a big believer in fouling. Now the data will say that it's a coin flip and you have the choice. That's what the data has said. But what I will say is I still to this day remember – the three-point shots going in. And I've seen them with the the the, the VCU. Stephen of Austin had that crazy and one three at the end. Like mm-hmm. I, the reason why I foul is because I still think that they have to. They come down to the other end of the floor. They make the free throws, and then then they got to foul you. And then you go down to the other end. So at the end of the day, you're still changing the side of the court that you're on. Yeah. So they still have to go further. But more importantly, the word practice. You need to. Pre- we talked about this. At Christopher Newport, you, we have to we have to practice fouling mm-hmm. because as, as as weird as this is, it's it's very hard to foul live time at the end without practicing it because a lot of times these these players are so good at being able to contort their body in a way where it looks like they're shooting when you grab them. Yes. So you have to be able to, if you I would say if you don't practice it, then you got to play it out. But but I would try to spend some time practicing how to foul late game. No, I agree. I totally agree with you in that. 
and they had a foul, like not an intentional foul, not a grab, not a wrap-up. Like there's a lot of stuff that goes into that. Sometimes you put the ball, as you mentioned earlier, in the official's hands on a call that could be a wrap-up that really isn't, and then it just it goes in a negative way for you. Well, because you say you came in as a cold shooter. Well, heck, if I'm on the other staff and I see you get something, I know you're coming in for one thing. I'm going to foul you because you haven't taken a shot. Now I want to see you go to the foul line and make two. Exactly. Uh, so, But what's your, uh, what's your Dan Hurley story? All right, so Steve Enright, the head coach of Bridgewater, worked for Dan. He was like a... At Wagner or at Rhode Island or... At Wagner. Wagner. Okay, so he worked as like a GA, and then I think he was like a special to the assistant. So here is why Dan Hurley is as feisty as he is. He has a routine before every game. Before every game, he drinks two five-hour energy orange drinks, and in the locker room while he's putting stuff on the board, he guzzles down one Red Bull orange-flavored before every game. (laughs) That's why he's feisty. And Steve will tell you that story. Like, he says before games he just absolutely, like, loses his mind. He plays constant mind tricks on himself to amp himself up and get so angry that when he goes out there, it all just comes out. It makes sense now watching him on the sidelines. (laughs) Like I said, I wrote that down. When you mentioned, like, you know, the feistiness, I'm like, oh, I've got to tell this story. This is too funny. So, Oh, wow. Um well, I mean, I appreciate your time. I'd love to have you back on when we get closer to March Madness so we can kind of talk picks and fun. Uh, uh, we I'll, can definitely talk picks. I know I know people have, you know, sometimes struggle taking their, their brackets, and I, I would love to come on and give some helpful tips of which upsets to pick and stuff. Yeah, I think I think that'll be a lot of fun. Hopefully, uh, you know, you get to watch some of the uh, Baylor-Oklahoma State game today before you go into work, so. Oh, yeah, I definitely plan on it. And I also believe there's a good Ohio State-Wisconsin game, so I know my dad will be watching that one. Nice. Well, I hope all is well in Connecticut. Um, It's always good to catch up. Look forward to having you back on the show, and uh, stay safe up there, all right? All right, you too. Thanks, buddy. See ya. Test. Test. It's always great to have Jeremy on the show. He, uh, like I said, he's a very intelligent guy. He knows more about the game of basketball from an analytic perspective than anybody I've ever worked with. Um, And I'm going to keep picking his brain every once in a while. I'll text him and say, Hey, if they're doing this, what do you think? Or if they're doing that, what do you think? And he always gets back to me, which I really appreciate. So looking forward to having him back on in March. I hope you guys have a great rest of your Saturday. We will be on first thing tomorrow morning with regards to the NFL Conference Championship Sunday. Until then, thank you for listening to Never My Wildest Dream podcast, and we will talk to you then.